0: So I got overwhelmed by life the other morning. I was walking through the grocery store. I had just finished visiting a congregant in the hospital. And while I was driving to pick up some milk, the radio was playing news of the impeachment vote in the House of Representatives. I went into the store thinking about what I was going to preach about this Sunday and the new member class that we had coming up the state of the Democratic primary, the conference I'm getting ready to, and, 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 and there's a lot these days, and I looked down and I saw my knuckles on the cart white, and it took a little bit, but I managed to get home and and unclench just a little bit, because it was also theoretically my day off. it's a lot these days y'all it's a lot one year from today november 3rd 2020 is federal election day right so i can just stop the sermon there (laughs) 365 days And there's some things we're not going to say here. It's part of IRS rules and a a basic understanding of the separation of church and state that I will not, nor will anyone, endorse or oppose any candidate from this pulpit. That's a a given. So in that sense, we won't be uh, involved in the election. And yet, elections are so much more than that. I don't know how it was here, but I remember the year leading up to the 2016 election where I was in Long Island. And for a few months in the fall, it felt like the anxiety of the whole church, the whole country really, was ratcheting up every week or so. And starting in about September 2016 through that spring, at the church I was at, we tracked a spike in pastoral care needs in the congregation I was at. Not actually related to what was going on in the world. It was everything from family issues to, to concerns about personal stuff that went back 20 years. But anxiety is like a balloon where you squeeze it in one place and it pops out in another. There was a lot of anxiety in the world that spring and I can't claim that things have calmed down since then, (laughs) right? (laughs) National politics remain. Um, I think the term of art is a garbage fire. The effects of climate change are very much present from fires in California to flooding in Nebraska. And people of privilege in our society and our denomination are only beginning the long process of seeing how the systems that we are a part of hold up and bolster inequality. Seeing just how accurate that Richard Blanco poem is and how it is an indictment of the choices that many of us, many of us have made. 2019 is a good time for anxiety tax in a grocery store. The easiest way through all of this is disengagement through cynicism. To say, well, politics has always been corrupt. There's nothing I can do to affect global carbon emissions and inequality has been a part of every human society that we have a record of. So it's clearly part of our nature. I know plenty of folks that take this stance. In in some ways, cynicism seems an appropriate response these days but it is not a faithful response. There's another way. This one rooted in history. In the fifth century in Europe, it seemed like the world was crumbling. The Roman Empire had fallen, a series of plagues had killed many people. Language and culture were changing rapidly and in ways that were uncomfortable for many religious communities formed inspired by the example and rules of Benedict of Nursia, now known as Saint Benedict. Communities that stepped away from what they saw as a fallen and corrupt world. Through separation, these communities would avoid the temptations of the world. The Scottish philosopher and historian Alistair McIntyre describes them in his book After Virtue in this way. A crucial turning point in that earlier history occurred when men and women of goodwill turned from the task of shoring up the Roman imperium and ceased to identify the continuity of civility and moral community with the maintenance of that empire. What they set themselves to achieve instead, often not recognizing fully what they were doing, was the construction of new forms of community within which the moral life could be sustained so that both morality and civility might survive the coming ages of barbarism and darkness. The Catholic thinker and commentator Rod Dreyer calls this the Benedict option, for people of faith to turn away from engaging with the world and instead cultivate small, self-contained communities that hold fast to the faith. And it's tempting in a way, and it's not just conservative Catholic thinkers that have advocated something like this. Howard Zinn said this, we don't have to wait for some grand utopian future. The future is an infinite succession of present, and to live now as we think human beings should live in defiance of all that is bad around us is itself a marvelous victory. We could spend our whole energy within this community, living now as we think human beings should live With these few hundred people, leaving the rest of the world to be. Unlike cynicism, that is a faithful response to the world, but it is not our faith's response. No, our faith calls us to engagement. Our fifth principle recognizes, calls us to participate in the democratic process within our congregation and in society at large, it says. And the democratic process is about more than an election 365 years ago, it is about engagement. It is a recognition that the Reverend Parisa Parsa frames as democracy does not mean I am as good as you are, but it means you are as good as I am. My connection with the sacred is only as precious as my willingness to accept the same connection in you. That is our faith's response. We engage with the world because we are committed to the process and because we know that we are interconnected. That Richard Blanco poem that we started with, we know the truth that it describes. We know that the two, vir- the two visions of St. Louis in it are visions of one city, So our engagement is about more than an election. The the president does not get to wave a magic wand and break down the structural barriers between the north and south side of St. Louis, West Baltimore and Federal Hill, the Haymarket and 27th Street. Reverend Teresa Soto asks, can we develop the skill of remembering the future? That is an animating question for us in this moment. To remember the future, we need, I think, to do two things. The first is that we have to know where we are right now. We have to look and understand where we are in this moment. We have to be grounded in the world, not as we wish it to be, but the world that is right now. Because it is only by understanding what is wrong with a system that you can hope to change the system. And the second thing we need to remember, the future, is hope. I've used this example before, but it it bears repeating. Vaclav Havel, the Czech statesman and literary figure, wrote that hope is an orientation of the spirit an orientation of the heart, it transcends the world that is immediately experienced and it is anchored somewhere beyond the world's horizons. Hope in this deep and powerful sense is not the same as joy that things are going well or willingness to invest in enterprises that are obviously headed for success, but rather an ability to work for something because it is good, not just because it has a chance to succeed. Havel writes that hope is being anchored beyond the horizons of the experienced world. So, we must recognize and be clear about the world as it is. That is the first step. But if that's the first and only step, then we end in that place of cynicism. Hope is not simply being content or resigned to the world as it is. Hope is knowing the world as it is and... Hope is a positive case that not only critiques the world as it is, but points to the world as it ought to be, that says we can do better than this, that anchors us in the midst of years like this. We need to be anchored because otherwise cynicism is a tempting response. We must be grounded. Havel goes on to make the point that hope is definitely not the same thing as optimism, but realism without hope leads to a hopelessness that quickly becomes indifference and paralysis. And this image he uses of being anchored over the horizon. Usually we think of anchors as something to keep us in place to hold us steady as the world around us moves. There's at least one other use for an anchor. Ships 150 years ago moved by sail. So imagine you're on a clipper ship 150 years ago. There aren't any motors or oars on the boat itself. The boat is designed to work with the wind, to sail in the direction that the wind is blowing or at 90 degrees to the wind. When you're out in an open sea with the wind at your back, it flies. But what do you do when there is no wind? What do you do when the wind is right in your face? And there was a process called warping back in the day. You take an anchor, a kedge, and you put it in a rowboat. You get about 20 people to row the anchor as far in front of the boat as they can and then drop it. And on the boat, the whole crew takes hold of the rope and pulls and inches forward and reaches the anchor, pulls it up. Gives it back to the rowboat with those 20 guys in it. They row out again and drop the anchor again. It is backbreaking work. It's not a fast process. But in this way, even the largest boat could move against the wind. So we can think of an anchor as a kind of motivation. Motivation. Quite literally, motivation when the wind is against us. This is a distinctive aspect of hope. Unlike optimism, hope does not require the wind to be at our backs. It is not moored in a certain understanding of the experienced world. Hope is a kind of faith statement. One year, until the 2020 elections, and it's going to be an intense year. There's still an impeachment inquiry going on. There are problems of inequality. Deep-seated problems. A quickly warming p- planet that transcends electoral politics. And our faithful response needs to be not a retreat into cynicism or a retreat into gated communities whose boundaries and behaviors we can control. It is to look to the world, embrace it, and continue to engage. We'll close with a, a full meditation by Reverend Teresa Soto from her book, Spilling the Light. She asks, can we develop the skill of remembering the future? Can we commit to build the community that will extend into a time we only know by memory because it will outlast us. Memorize the compass points of the day yet to come. The truth, the love, the fire, the endless yes of the horizon. Shake the scales from your imagination. Reach, stretch, rise. There is no more time for pretending that everything can be all right without your care, without your attention. You can mourn, Grief being more real at times than the promise of the sunrise, more real than the peace of the moon, that inconsistent silver turns and disappears. And yet, while we may mourn changes, losses, deceptions, and betrayals, beneath the ash we find the ember. We weep and then, as we have learned from labor movements, we organize. Remember the day toward which we gather the tomorrow toward which we advance. It is with your actions today that you engage with that muscle memory, that sense of smell, that ragged velvet feel of a day you have never lived. It is also your day. Remember it well. Memorize the compass points of the day to come. Hold on to hope. Drop the anchor over the horizon and start pulling. Amen.